Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. I want to welcome all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are. So grateful to have you, as well as all of those out in Prescott Valley today. So, so grateful for you. Thanks for coming. If you're a newcomer with us, uh, we are always honored that you chose that you would choose to come and spend part of your week uh, with us. We'd love to get connected with you. So uh, out in the lobby off to the left, we have a place we call Pastor's Point. I'll be hanging out there after the service, along with some of our other staff there in Prescott Valley, you can stop by Connection Central, and our pastoral staff will be there as well. Again, we'd just love to uh, have you come and introduce yourself this morning. Well, we are in this series that we kicked off last week that we're calling Beyond Belief, and it's a study in the book of James. So before we get into our text, I do want to make you aware that we have some booklets available, and these booklets are a little different than ones we've done connected to sermon series in the past. These are more for your private study. So part of what we wanted to do through these books was to equip you to learn to study the Word of God on your own. And so there's text in here, there's some reflection questions, there's some prompts in here, uh, but it's an opportunity for you uh, to spend 10, 15 minutes a day or a week uh, connecting with the Word of God. So we invite you to do that. And hopefully this is a uh, something that you can walk somebody else along with. So that's, that's our hope for that. But today we're in this series and we're talking about the book of James. And as we learned last week, James is actually the brother of Jesus, actually his half-brother. This would have been the oldest son of Mary and Joseph. And so he's writing this letter and he's writing it to believers. Now, the believers that he's writing to were those who made up the church in the city of Jerusalem, the very first believers That's who James is writing to. Do you remember the story of Pentecost when Peter stands up and preaches the gospel and 3,000 people were baptized that day? You remember a little later, it says there in Acts chapter four that there were 5,000 men who had become believers. A little later on, we're told that every day, men and women were coming to faith 
in Jesus. And this church in Jerusalem kept growing and growing. And it says they met together every day in the temple courts and with each other, house to house. That's this church. The first believers, primarily Jewish people. And then all of a sudden, Acts chapter 8 comes. And a persecution breaks out. Stephen was the first martyr. And here's what we're told. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered. So all except the apostles were scattered these scattered believers from the city, from the church in Jerusalem, that's who James is writing this letter to. He's writing it to those who were baptized at Pentecost, but then got chased out of their homes. He's writing it to those who gave their life to Jesus, which ultimately cost them their way of life. He's writing it to people who said, I am all in for following Jesus, but it led them to pain that they never expected. He's writing it to those who signed up to be a part of the family of God, only to have that family scattered to the wind. So they were enduring suffering. It comes from trials and persecution. And there would be There is no doubt that their life would have been a lot easier had they just punted this whole Jesus thing. Like at any point, they could have just said, I'm out on the Jesus stuff. I'll just go back to the the good Jewish faith that I grew up with. And they could have gone home, back to Jerusalem, back to their family, and everything would have been fine. But James says, as he opens this letter, as we learned last week, he says, don't do that. Don't quit. You don't get to walk away. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He says, do you want the crown of life that Jesus promised? Then you have to persevere. So that was how he started this letter last week. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment you're one of these people. I want you to imagine that that you signed up to start following Jesus, but then you've had to flee because of the persecution that came because of your decision, that you've been chased from your home, from your city, from your family, and you don't know if you're going to make it back. What was a life-changing decision To follow Jesus changed your life in ways that you never imagined. Now, don't you think, if that was your story, that there could be a little bit of doubt or confusion or maybe even a little bit of bitterness toward God, wondering why he would let this happen to you? Well, let me ask it this way. Let's make it a little more personal. Have you ever dealt with a season of struggle that made you look to God and say, what are you doing? Have you ever had to walk through pain that made you question if God was even doing anything in your life? Have you ever had a season of trial that made you question if following Jesus was actually even worth it? My guess is, Most of us have, and if you haven't, good news, it's coming. 
And when those seasons come, it can be really tempting just to throw up your hands and walk away. And no doubt many of the people that James is writing this letter to are in that place right now, and James has a word for them. And I think it's a word that could be helpful for us. Here's what he says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, at first blush, it could seem as if James has kind of shifted in his thoughts. Because here, he's talking about being tempted. In the previous verse, he's talking about trials, and he's talking about testing. And so for us, those two things go in different categories. We have trials and testing on one hand, and you got temptation or being tempted. That's another category. We keep them apart. However, when James wrote this down, there was a lot more overlap in those two than we see in our English text, okay? I don't do this a lot. Your New Testament was written in Greek, and I want to show you the Greek words. First, the Greek words that are for trial and test, and then the Greek word for tempted. And here they are. Ready? This is the first Greek word for trial and test. This is the second Greek word for being tempted. Now, you don't have to be a scholar to recognize that this is all the same root word. Like it's the same. One's a noun, one's a verb, but they mean temptation, test, trial, tempt, test, test. Like it's the same. It's the same word. So when they, when James is writing this, there's not these two categories. Now, this can make it a little confusing for us Because in one sense, it's like, so is God testing us or is God tempting us? That's the question. And so our English English translators try to help clear it up for us a little bit. But here's the truth. I think we can all see it, that that James wants us to understand. If If we understand life and from your experience and my experience, we know that with every trial comes a temptation. And with every temptation, there is a test. Like all of these things, there is some overlap. These are connected. But the thing that James wants to make sure that we understand is that while God does test his people, the one thing he will never do is tempt his people. The way that you understand which one of these words doesn't mean test, tempt, or trial. The way that you understand is you, the context of the sentence is what helps us to understand what the word means. And the most important piece to this whole puzzle, the biggest difference between trial and test and temptation, it all boils down to motivation. What's the motivation? The motive of God in testing is to strengthen our faith, to grow us in our perseverance. It's like a a trainer at a gym when you're working out and he puts on five more pounds than, than you think that you can handle. Or she says, do 
five more burpees, you got this. And they press you to go further than you thought you could go to strengthen you, to build you up. That's a test, that's a trial. Temptation, on the other hand, the motivation behind temptation is not to build you up, but to take you down. It's to set you up for failure. The motive behind temptation is to cause someone to fail, and God will never do that. He's never done that. He's never been tempted by evil, and he will never tempt anyone to do evil. He does not want to see you taken down. There's nothing in God that is tempted by evil, and he is powerless to tempt others to do evil. So the question then becomes, so where does temptation come from? James makes it clear, God is not the author of temptation. He is not tempting you. So the question is, where does temptation come from? And the answer is threefold. You have three enemies of your soul that are out to take you down via temptation. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the enemies of your soul who are out to tempt you into destruction. Now, I want to walk through these real quick. So we're going to start with the world. The the first enemy of your soul is the world. If you are in Jesus, you need to know that the world is against you. The world is against you. You don't have to be real smart to figure that out if you're actually trying to follow Jesus. The world is against you, just as the world was against Jesus. In fact, Jesus gave us this warning. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as your own. As, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So Jesus makes it really, really clear The world, meaning the systems of the world, the worldview, the structures, the value, it's all a part of the dominion of darkness and it hates you. It will set against you tests and trials and temptations to take you down, just as it tried to do with Jesus himself. I mentioned last week that every person in this life suffers. Nobody gets out of this world without suffering. However, there is a suffering. There is a trial and testing that comes to those who are in Jesus that does not come to everybody. If you today chose to punt your faith in Jesus and give yourself fully to the ways of the world, then the world would love you as its own. You could save yourself a lot of trouble if you just bowed to the pressure of the worldview of our culture. It would save you a lot of struggle. The world is out to take you down. The world isn't for, I'm sorry, the world isn't against everyone. The world's just against those who are in Jesus. But the world is not the only 
enemy that brings us temptation. The other enemy of your soul is the devil. Now, I know that even as I say that, that does not sound very sophisticated, right? It is really interesting to me how many people believe in God but do not believe in the devil. How many people believe in heaven but do not believe in hell? Like we we talked about this last week. 81% of Americans still claim to believe in God. 81% still believe in God. Only 56% believe in the devil. While 69% of people believe in heaven, in the afterlife, only 58% believe in hell. So we all want the good stuff on the other side, and we reject any of the bad stuff on the other side. So I know, even in our gathering here today, just barely half actually believe in the devil. So there's a part of you, I know, you just kind of want to roll your eyes at this whole idea that there is a, an enemy out there. But Scripture makes it clear that we have an enemy called the devil or Satan, our adversary, and he is determined to fight against us, to take us out through very real temptations. Temptation is one of his greatest weapons. Let me just give you a few examples. It happened to Jesus, and Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's what he did. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, hey, won't you make some bread? I know you're hungry. He was tempted by the tempter. Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul warns husbands and wives to keep sexual intimacy as a priority in their marriage. Why? Here's why. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That there's an enemy even in your marriage who's trying to tempt you. Paul, writing to the church of Thessalonica, was concerned about people in the church losing their faith. And he says to them, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Like we have this enemy, the devil, and he is out to take us down by tempting us away from the God that we love. Now, what's interesting to me is that in our text, when talking about temptation, James doesn't mention the world. And James doesn't mention the devil. Instead, James focuses on the third enemy of our soul, the flesh. James focuses on the enemy Within us, here's what he says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. In essence, James looks at the people and he says, when you're tempted to walk away, 
When you are tempted to punch your faith, when you are tempted to pursue what God says to flee and to flee toward what God says to, I'm sorry, flee from what God says to pursue. He says in that moment, you need to stop blaming God. You need to stop blaming the devil. You need to stop blaming the culture. And you need to take a good, hard look in the mirror. Because that's who you're fighting with. Turns out the greatest enemy you have is you. The greatest struggle you have is your own evil desires. Or what scripture calls the flesh. And these desires are not neutral. They aren't your friends. They are your foe. Peter gives us this warning. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. I wonder how many of us actually believe that. They wage war against your soul. Your own evil desires. Our sinful desires are not just inconvenient nuisances to our spiritual life. They are waging war for our soul. And the greatest avenue of attack is ambush. How many of you all like to fish? Anybody like to fish? Okay, we got a few of you, the rest of you, it's going to be a long sermon. <laughs> the goal of fishing is really simple, right? The goal of fishing is to take a hook like this and try to get this a fish to swallow it so that you can lodge it in its face. It's true. You want to lodge this thing in the, the fish's face so that you can drag them out of the water to their demise. That's the whole point of fishing. Now, here's what we know. You could not take a hook like this and just go to your favorite watering hole and drop this in a pond or drop this in a river. You couldn't just go drop this in a lake and expect a fish to bite it. You couldn't expect that a fish would just swim up to this thing and say, ooh, that's cool. Got a little loop on the top, a little pointy plate. I wonder what that would taste like. Couldn't do it. They wouldn't bite. Okay? So, so what you have to do is you got to figure out a way to disguise this to disguise your true intent, you got to figure out a way to make this appetizing. You got to package this in such a way that not only does it become interesting to a fish, but it becomes irresistible to a fish. You got to figure out a way to make this look like not just something they want, but something they need. And so, what you have to do is you, you tap into their desires. And so you wrap this hook in something like this. 
So you get a nice little lure. And this little lure makes a little noise. And this little lure's got little eyeballs. This little lure's got little flippity things that go wee, 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 wee in the water. And a fish looks at that and says, oh, well, that's interesting. I bet that would be amazing to eat. And you, you wrapped your little hook into one of those little dooflickies. And the fish says, I'm all in. Give me some of that. Now, here's the cool thing. There are millions, maybe billions of lures out there. Here's the cool thing. Like, you, you, if this one doesn't work, you just trade it out and you give them something else. And you trade it out and you give them something else. And you can just keep on, keep on tempting them with this, with as many options as you can come up with. But the cool thing is, after a while, you don't have to go through a litany of lures anymore. Because after a while, you can figure out what they're going to want even before they bite. You can begin to understand, if I go to this river on a cloudy day, if I put this on, they're in. If I go to this lake and fish in this deep of water, I use this color lure and I got them every time. Like you don't even have to try to figure it out because after a while you can find and figure out their tendencies and exploit their weaknesses. And time after time they will fall for it because they think they're getting one thing and they end up getting something else, but by the time they realize it, it's too late. The hook is set. The barbs are in, and they are dragged away, and death is imminent. How many of you all realize that I stopped talking about fishing a while ago? Let's go back to our text. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. This Greek word for enticed literally means to lure with a bait. This is what happens to us. And who is it that is dragging us away? It is our own evil desires, throwing out the lure. And our own evil desires know our tendencies and exploit our weaknesses, and we are hooked. Our own flesh is causing us to chase after things that on the outside look so appealing only to have those very things lead to our death. Like we have these desires in us for sexual fulfillment, so our flesh leads us to chase after porn, and the hook sinks in, and we're anything but fulfilled. We have this desire for security, and our flesh screams at us to save, 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 but before we know it, the hooks of greed sink in because I've got twice as much as I had 10 years ago, but it's still not enough. 
We have this desire for comfort, and so our flesh leads us to overindulge in things that bring us comfort. Whether it's too much food or too much beer or too much Netflix or too much me time and the hooks of gluttony and sloth and selfishness sink in. We have these desires to be seen as confident and our flesh lures us to overcompensate and the hooks of pride sink in. We have this desire to be seen as holy and so we make a show of our faith and before we know it, the hooks of self-righteousness are sinking into us and on and on and on we could go. We have these desires and our flesh leads us to fulfill those desires in a way that ends us ends up dragging us away, ultimately, like our little fish friends, to our death. James says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. When our desires conceive, when those sinful fleshly, evil desires are given the opportunity to gestate, they will give birth to sin, and that sin will eventually give birth to death. And this is not death that you die in the old folks' home at 90, sleeping nicely in your bed. That's not the death that he's speaking of. Everybody's going to experience that death. No, the death that he's warning us about this is the opposite of the life that Jesus promised. Jesus promised eternal life, and James is warning us that this leads to death, not the life that Jesus promised, which means this is a very serious matter. I want you to note the temptation here is not the problem. Temptation isn't the problem. Each person is tempted. Like there's no stopping that. Even Jesus himself was tempted. Temptation isn't the issue. But it's when temptation leads to the, the desire conceiving, which brings about the sin, which leads to the death. The temptation piece, we can't stop that. We live in a world, temptation will not go away until the world, the flesh, and the devil go away. So we have to deal with temptation. So how do we deal with temptation? Temptation isn't the problem. The temptation is tapping into our desires. So what needs to change? So our desires need to change. And the good news is the Spirit of God was given to us to help us deal with our desires. We talked about this when we did a whole series on the Holy Spirit. This is the way the Apostle Paul talked about it. He said, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not. Make sure you hear that. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not 
to do whatever you want. So you have the spirit who wants you to do what God wants, and you have your flesh which wants you to do whatever you want. And the spirit and the spiritual desires are fighting against the fleshly desires. The spirit is trying to get you not just to do whatever you want, to go biting on whatever pretty lure is thrown your way. The spirit is saying, don't do that. And he's fighting against our fleshly desires. The Spirit has come. Don't miss this. The Spirit has come not to do away with temptation, but to help us fight for new desires. So that when we are walking by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh anymore. The promise of scripture is that through Christ, we have a new heart, new affections, a new love, new desires to actually love the Lord. So here's the question. Are you walking by the Spirit? Or are you gratifying the flesh? Because you can't do both. Let me end with some good news. Good news is that God is not out to tempt us. God is not motivated by evil, nor can he be motivated by evil. So he's not out to tempt us with evil desires. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Do not be deceived. The world wants to deceive you. Your flesh will deceive you. The enemy wants to deceive you. The devil will tell you. The flesh will tell you. The world will tell you that God's plan and God's ways and God's motives, they aren't good. The enemy wants you not only to question God's actions, but to question God's motives. And James says, let me tell you about God's motive. God's motive is good and it is perfect for everything good and perfect comes down from God. It's good and it's perfect and it's always been that way. From the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all the animals and all the people and he stepped back and he said, it is good. And it's always been good. It's good. It's coming down to you from your Father in heaven. God is good. And he does not change. He does not change like shifting shadows. Easy for me to say. It's good. What God has for you today is good. And what God has for you tomorrow is good. And what God has for you next year is good, even if you don't understand it in the moment. Everything that you've experienced in your life that's good has come from him. And everything that you've experienced in your life that will be good will come from him. It's good. 
even if you don't understand it in the moment. It's good because he's good. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is today that we would walk by the Spirit and put to death the misdeeds of the body. That we would no longer allow ourselves to be fooled by the world and the flesh and the devil which are luring us away from the good that you have for us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to open our eyes to change our desires so that we're repulsed by the things that would drag us away from our Heavenly Father. And it's in Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.